So I was thinking about this week, I, I thought there's three questions that every person asks himself. Isn't there at one point in their life? This, how did I get here? Right? How did I get here? I don't think anybody can go through life and not think at some point like, I mean, look, what, how did I get here? Was it time plus chance equals me? Is it nobody times nothing equals everything? Or is there a creator? As we look at creation, as people wonder, I think down through the ages, I don't know that I could say every person, but I'd say, without a doubt, most people look around, look at themselves, look at others and think, how did I get here? That's one question. The Bible addresses that. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. And God created. God spoke things into existence. Another question people ask, what happens after I die? Right? My body goes in the ground. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. What happens? Is that it? Is that all? The worms eat me and I go to be fertilizer. What goes on when that happens? Or is there immaterial part of us that lives on, our soul, our spirit? Do we go to be with God and one day will our bodies be resurrected to join our spirit in heaven? It's another question. The Bible addresses that. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. There's a third question, and one I want to address tonight is this. I think most people, if not all people, ask themselves, what am I doing here? (laughs) What is my purpose? You know, have you ever stopped to just really think and try and take a 10,000 foot view and say, what am I really doing here? What is my purpose? I go to bed at night, I wake up, I eat breakfast, I go to class, I go to work, I go whatever it is. And I come home and I eat some dinner. I check my Facebook, and I text a few people, and I go to bed. And then I wake up, and I eat breakfast. Why? What am I doing here? Have you ever asked yourself that? Chances are you probably have. Well, the good news is the Bible has the answers for us. As usual, the Bible has the answers. You guys know this. Many of you know this. But there's something called Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question is this. What is the chief end of man? The answer is the chief end of man is to enjoy God and what? Glorify Him forever. That's the chief end of man. That's the end. That's the goal. That's the prize. That's my purpose. To enjoy God and to glorify Him forever. I love that. But sometimes, if I were to be honest, that feels a little bit abstract or feels a little bit ethereal for me. It's kind of hard to define. What does it mean to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? It's good, but what is that? What does that mean? Well, again, I believe the Bible has the answer for us. First, Peter, let me read this to you. As each of us has received a gift, 1 Peter 4.10, use that gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very varied grace. Whoever speaks is the one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, here's our purpose, God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, how do we glorify God? That's a question, right? First Peter says, in part, we glorify God by using the gifts that He's given us and serving others with Him. That's what tonight is. We've been talking about the one another's of Scripture, Matt said. We've been looking all throughout the New Testament, this phrase, one another, where it comes up. 
And tonight we talk about serve one another. And I want to do, anyone in a biology class or a biology lab or had one at one time, high school, college, you know, microscopes, and just kind of the cheap ones that they all have, but they got the three, um, Mike's laughing at me because he's a pre-med major. What's the three, you got like a 10 power, a 40 power, what's it called? Objective lenses. We're going to do that tonight with Scripture a little bit. Okay, first I want to look at what is the Word of God. What is the Word of God? Then we're going to switch the microscope and we're going to zoom in a little bit and we're going to look at Galatians with a different objective lens. And then we're going to switch to a different objective lens and we're going to zoom, zoom in and look at our text. But first we've got to address what is the Bible? Okay, the second question in the Westminster Catechism, shorter catechism, is this. Uh, what rule has God given us to direct us in how we may glorify and enjoy Him? That's the question. What rule has He given us in order to direct us so we might know how to glorify and enjoy Him? That's important, isn't it? The answer is this. The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us in how we may glorify and enjoy, and enjoy Him. That's a ten power. We're farthest out. This is the Word of God. This is what we're going to look at tonight. Why do I say that? Well, Hebrews 4.12 says this word, the word of God is living and active, sharper than the double-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it's able to what? Judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why is that important? Because I believe as we look at Galatians tonight, that the word of God falls afresh on our ears, fresh as the day Paul penned it. The word of God is living. And it's active, and we need to hear it tonight, amen? We need to sit, we need to hear what God's Word says. We need God to speak to us. He speaks to us through His Word. It's as fresh as the day Paul penned it. That's good news. That's good news. Galatians. I want you to turn to Galatians. Turn with me, follow me to Galatians chapter 5. Now, Galatians is in the New Testament, uh, last third of your Bible, and it's in the it starts with Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians. So if you hit Philippians, Ephesians, you've gone too far. Um, but go to Galatians. Chapter 5. It's right after 2 Corinthians. Small book, probably only a couple, three pages in your Bible. As I mentioned before, this was written by Paul. Paul is an apostle. Okay, One of the people who laid the foundation for the church, if you will. Galatians 2.20 says the apostles, the prophets, they were foundational. Paul was one of those guys. He actually wrote half the New Testament. Before he was a Jesus hater, he persecuted Christians, drug them out, drug them off to jail. He was a Jesus hater. What happened? God woke him up. He broke into his life. You may remember Jesus met him on the Damascus Road, said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He said, I'm persecuting you. He didn't say that, but why did Jesus say that? He's persecuting his church. He's persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting Christ's followers. He woke him up. He's no longer a Jesus hater. Now he's a Jesus lover. And he goes on missionary journeys all through the Middle East. He goes into, um, up into Europe and throughout Asia. And he weaves around and he begins to plant churches. Guess what? One of those churches is the church at Galatia. He's writing to the Galatians, the Galatian people. Okay? It's, uh, it's for, just for your reference, it's where Turkey is now. Okay, so the, the southern area of Galatia, he plants, I don't know, three, four churches, and he's writing to those churches. That's where we get the book of Galatians. Are you with me? We, we went to another objective lens, right? And now we're zooming in a little bit more. That's Galatians. 
And after Paul plants the church at Galatia, what happens is false teachers come in after him. So you can imagine if this happened to Grace, someone comes in, plants a church, then leaves as a missionary to go plant more churches. And following him are these false teachers. These false teachers were called Judaizers. Okay, so this church is planted, it begins to do well, but something happens. These false teachers come in and they begin to teach false doctrine, false teaching. And the people at Galatia begin to be infected with the false teaching. This is a serious letter. It's an urgent letter. It's a book of many contrasts. It contrasts the true gospel and the false gospel. It it contrasts faith and works, law and grace, liberty and legalism, sonship and slavery, fruit of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh. It's a book of contrasts. It sets these two things apart as contrasts. Galatians is very intense. It's real intense. In fact, if you read all of Paul's letters, most of them start with a a commendation to his people. You're doing really well in this, guys. Good job. Way to go. Not Galatians. Uh Uh-uh. In fact, look at chapter 1 with me. Uh, You're in chapter 5. Let me read our our theme verse first. Chapter 5, verse 13. Okay. For you were called the freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's our text, serve one another. But I want you to see how intense this gospel starts. So go to chapter 1 with me. Okay, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Paul just does a short intro, intro, and then he says this, I'm astounded that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It's a big deal, isn't it? It's a matter of urgency because when the gospel is distorted, polluted, perverted, adultered, it's always a big deal. We should always raise up as teachers and say, no, this gospel is pure, it's holy, it's of God. And Paul's defending the gospel. Okay, And in those contrasts, in all those contrasts that he sets apart, he sets apart this one. Bondage and freedom. Bondage and freedom. That's our text tonight. Go back to Galatians 5, look at verse 13. I want to split this verse tonight for you into just three parts, A, B, and C. Okay, You'll see it on your outline there. If the outline's helpful, use it. If it's not, set it aside. I don't like outlines. I almost never use them. I just make them because I know some of you enjoy them. But on the outline, it's split into three parts. Okay, The first is this, for you are called to freedom, brothers. You're called to freedom, brothers. Freedom from what? Well, freedom from sin and the law. You say, I didn't really know I was enslaved. Well, that's the problem. People don't know, they don't realize that they're enslaved, enslaved to sin, enslaved to the law. The false teachers, the Judaizers, they'd come in with these, to these Christians and they're trying to make them submit again to the law. What's the law? When they say law, they're referring primarily to the Old Testament of God. Okay? So they've been set free. Paul's trying to remind them and these false teachers have said, no, you need to submit. You need to submit to this ceremonial and governmental and, and moral law. But those laws, the ceremonial and governmental laws of the Old Testament, they were fulfilled in Christ. Did you get that? You guys remember the sacrifices? Have you ever read through that? Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy, you're reading through that and you're going, these sacrifices are so intense, aren't they? I mean, you got like minute details to the nth degree for this person in this scenario. The guilt offering and the sin offering and the all these different offerings, those are fulfilled. Those point to Christ. Okay, those were a shadow 
of the reality that came in Christ. Do you get that? You ever confused by that? I remember as a kid being so confused by all the sacrifices. What are those? Those point forward. Those look forward to Christ and His sacrifice. But the false teachers aren't getting that. In fact, they're asking these people to submit under the yoke of the law again. You're in Galatians 5. Look over Galatians 3. Okay, Galatians 3, just a page or so back. Verse 22. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now the law is good. Okay, it's God's character fleshed out. It's good law, but what does it say? It, it, it encloses everyone. It shuts them all up. The picture is this. Think of a big net in the sea, and you're drawn in the net, okay, and there's a bunch of fish, and the sides are just getting smaller and smaller, and the fish are swimming around. That's what's happening. They're enclosed on all sides. Do you get it? You ever seen how an anaconda or a boa constrictor kills its prey? Okay, I give you the shivers just thinking about it. Constricts. Tighter and tighter. And every time you exhale, a little bit tighter. That's what the law is doing. That's the picture of the law here. It's enclosing on all sides. Okay, It's like a heavy weight around someone's neck. It's like a, a heavy yoke. In fact, look back to Galatians 5, chapter 1. Look at how this chapter starts. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He says, stand firm. Don't go back under the yoke of slavery. What's a yoke of slavery? Well, a yoke of slavery is probably something that's a little bit hard for us to understand, but I thought it might help if we illustrate this. So, TD, would you come up? And Zach and John, can I borrow you guys just for a quick illustration? Yeah, you guys can come up. Don't be afraid. Just come up. Okay, this isn't a yoke. This is a horse collar. Okay? We're going to have this on our stairs at home. It's a decoration, right, baby? Okay, it's a horse collar. So, Taylor, stand up here. <laughs> Got these cool decorations at home like horse collars. So, this is going to enslave Taylor. Taylor, you good? Yeah? Okay. Now, John and Zach, step up there on either side of her. This is the yoke of slavery. Okay? <laughs> Now, on the count of three, I want you guys to grab the bottom of that horse collar, Zach and John, and put all your weight on it. Okay? <laughs> Get ready? Go ahead and grab it. One, two. No, I'm joking. Don't do that. <laughs> but you can imagine what would happen if they did. What would happen? Taylor would get slammed. Okay, she would. Thank you. You can sit down. That's what. The law does. That's what Scripture does. It enslaves people. It crushes people. It's good. The law is good, but the Word says it's our tutor to point us to Christ. So you can imagine if they'd have, if they'd have weighed her down, <laughs> she'd have got slammed. That's what the law does. So Paul says, don't submit again to it. Remember, just like I took the collar off of Taylor, you've been set free. Taylor, you've been set free, Christian. Do you get the picture? Okay. Freedom to what? That's the question. We've been set free from sin and the law, but what have we been set free to? We've been set free to serve. Now we have freedom to serve. Freedom to serve. I understand now, Tanner, that I'm enslaved. How do I get free? If you're free to serve, you're free to serve. If you're a Christian, you're free. But if you're not, you're enslaved. Maybe you don't even realize you are enslaved, but you're enslaved 
to the law. You're enslaved to your sin as an unbeliever. So the question is, how do you get free? That's a good question because this text we're looking at, it already assumes that freedom. Are you with me? But we need to go back and look at how do you get that freedom? How do you get freed? So I want you to go to Romans. That's to the left. Okay? To the left in your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And go to chapter 7 with me. I want you to look at chapter 7 of Romans because Paul wrote this too and it really helps us. Verse 4 through 6. Romans chapter 7, verse 4 through 6. He says this, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Who's that other? To Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay? Verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work on our members to bear fruit for death. That's before. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What a good picture, huh? That law, that collar was taken off. It's been set aside. We've died to that old way. We've been raised anew with Christ. Do you get the imagery? It's really important to understand as a Christian, you're free. You're free to serve. We've died to the law and we've now live through Christ and we belong to Christ. Before, we had these sinful passions and they were brought out by the law. It says they were aroused by the law. Now we've died to those things, so now we can what? We can live to the Spirit. We can serve in newness of life. That's the theme. Remember, serve one another. Okay? Let's go to another scripture I think will help us. Go back just a chapter to chapter 6 in Romans. Chapter 6, look at verse 23. This is the second scripture on your sheet. Romans 6, 22-23 says this, But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. You know this one, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news. That's good news now. We were under the yoke of the law and crushed under it. Because of Christ, we can be set free through the agency of faith, through His mercy and grace. We can be set free from the old way and we live in newness of life as free Christians. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. That's what Paul says. That's what the Word of God says to us tonight. So we have freedom in Christ that, let's be honest, the world just doesn't know about. They don't see that often. Unless they see it in us, they don't realize the bondage they're under till they see that life you live, that new life in Christ. So you're bearing the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's what happens in newness of life. Let's look at part B of this verse. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So before giving the positive command, Paul gives the negative admonition here. He says, don't use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. You've been set free, but he qualifies his statement and he says, don't use it to indulge your sinful nature. So perhaps as a response to the false teachers, probably, but for sure for us, as a warning to us, Paul reminds us, your freedom, it's not for fornication. Your liberty, it's not for licentiousness. Your freedom is not for the flesh. In simple terms, don't say, look how free I am. 
I'm a Christian. And then go and do thing God's, things that God hates. You see what a contradiction that would be? You say we're free. I'm a Christian. I'm free. But I'm going to go do things God hates. Don't do that. Paul says don't use your freedom as liberty to sin. Are you with me? Okay. There's a reality. Listen, there's a reality for us as Christians indwelling sin in unredeemed flesh. Until we pass from this life to the next, I'm going to tell you, we're going to fight. We're going to fight. We're going to have to fight. Because we wrestle with this indwelling sin. There's still sin present in the world. And we still wrestle even though we're no longer enslaved with sin ourselves. So on one hand, you have people tempted to go back to the law, right? And submit to it. On the other hand, Paul addresses this. He says, listen, you're free, but don't use your freedom for sin. That was never the use. That was never the idea with freedom. And that was never the intent of grace. In fact, Titus 2, let me read you this. Titus 2, 11 through 12 says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Why did grace come? Well, grace came and it set us free. But what does it teach us to do? Grace teaches us It's appeared and now it trains us to renounce ungodliness. So rather than using our freedom for the flesh, what do we do? We now use our freedom and the grace of God to work for Him, to serve for Him, to love Him and to love others. Are you catching the drift? It would have been easy. Listen, it would have been easy for these believers at Galatia, at these Galatian churches, and it would be easy for any of us here tonight who lived a life of overt sin, of, of, of drunkenness or marijuana or whatever it was before Christ, to say now, I'm free. And I'm going to go use my freedom to do all these things. But Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, be enslaved to Christ. And so, as a warning, as a reminder, Paul says, don't use your liberty for license. Don't use your freedom to sin or for the flesh. This made me think of something as I was studying. I hope I never forget this summer. Oh, we had a conference here at Grace. A guy named Brad Bigney spoke, and he said something so simple that it really stuck with me. He said this, you don't have to do what you want. And I was like, whoa, that's deep, Brad. It's not deep, but it is kind of deep, right? You don't have to do what you want. As a Christian, you no longer have to obey those sinful desires. When they arise... You don't have to listen to them. You're not enslaved to them. This is one of the spectacular mysteries of the Gospel for me. We've been set free from the power of sin and death. Do you get that? That's a big deal. You no longer have to do what you want. You no longer have to obey these sinful desires. And one of the reasons I enjoy exercise, just to be honest with you, one of the reasons I think about often as I exercise, it's a chance for me It's a chance for my mind to tell my body what to do and not the other way around. Are you with me? I'm exercising and my body says, Tanner, knock it off. I'm tired. And my mind says, no, you can do one more. I said, no, I just am really tired. It would be really good to pack this up and uh, quit now. And my mind can say, I can train my body. And my mind can say, no, keep going. And Christian, so it is for you You can say no to those sinful desires. You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. You're now a slave to Christ. You don't have to obey those things. Does that make sense? It's good news. 
Proverbs 26.11, I think of this sometimes. It says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. We don't have to return to those same sinful ideas, those same sinful desires anymore. I couldn't find it said any better than this, so I'll read it to you. It's a quote. It says this, Far from the Christian being... Far from the Christian life being enslaving, it is the only way to resist the slaveries offered by the world. But this doesn't mean that Christians can do whatever they feel like doing, which itself is just another form of slavery. Rather, serving and loving others is the route to escaping bondage and to fulfilling the ultimate content of the law. Well said? Amen. Doing what we want in our unredeemed flesh is really just slavery. But God has set us free from that in Christ. Taylor, do you want to go back under the, the horse collar? Do you want those? No, of course you don't. Why would we as Christians want to go back under the horse collar? Why would we want to go again to the yoke when Jesus has said, My yoke is easy, my burden is light? No way. No way do I want to go back to that. We had the negative command, don't do this. Here's the positive. Serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Literally, be a slave to one another. Be a slave to one another. Watch again how this vertical relationship develops. If you've been here for any length of time, or as all of you haven't, we've talked about how all these one another's come out of the vertical and into the horizontal. So 1 Peter, I think you're still in Romans. Why don't you go over to 1 Peter with me? 1 Peter's way near the end of your Bible. It's after, uh, it's after Hebrews and James. Then comes 1 Peter. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says this, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves to God. Do you see what just happened? We're set free from the law of sin and death. And right away again, we're enslaved. What are we slaves to now? God, that's the vertical relationship. What's the result? What's the result? We can't help but serve one another. Do you see how this works? We become, at conversion, slaves of God. And we become, at conversion, as we practice this, Slaves to one another. That's the command. Be enslaved. Be slaves to one another. Look for ways to serve one another. Instead of indulging the flesh, through love, serve. It's a great contrast. Now, admittedly, admittedly, listen, this takes some critical thinking, doesn't it? This takes some creative power and some careful observation. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm, I want to serve. But you have to think, how can I serve people? Like, would it be, for example, a real service to my wife? Her birthday's coming up. It's November 11th. Got the tattoo, so I don't forget. I'm just joking. I don't have a tattoo. It's 11 11 87. It's coming up. And what if I said, sweetie, you're not going to believe this. I got a moose hunt to Alaska for us. I mean, you. Uh, I think you're just really going to love it. And I bought us, I mean, you, a new gun uh, to go on the trip. And uh, I just, I knew you wouldn't want to be apart from me for that long, so I booked a ticket for myself too. Is that all right? <laughs> that would not be serving her. And it's kind of an extraneous example, but you get what happens. Sometimes we try to serve ourselves in serving others, don't we? Instead, we have to think critically about 
what would really bless this person? Knowing this person, how could I really serve this person? What would be special to him or her or to a brother or sister? How could I really do that? That takes some critical thinking. I want to exhort you to take some time to think critically about how could I actually serve. Now look around. Really, look around. Look around at one another. Listen, these are people for starts, not exclusively, but that you're a slave to. So you just took the handcuffs off the yoke and now you're enslaved to God. And as a result, he says, serve my people. It's a great place to start. This isn't the end, but on a personal level, okay, you ought to be serving one another. Look for ways to bless one another. I love it when people pay attention to things that are special and no ways to serve me. There's, no, there's few things in this life to me like a handwritten note. And seriously, in an age of typing everything, I, I type everything. There's few things like a handwritten note. So think of ways critically where you can actually serve people. Okay, serve them. It takes time and it takes discernment, not just on a personal level, but on a local level. On a local level. You remember the first verse that I read you. It was in First Peter. You're there now. Go from chapter 2 to chapter 4. Okay, chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4 talks about Love and hospitality and serving for God's glory. And chapter 4, verse 10 says this, Each has received a gift. You remember this from earlier. So use it to serve one another as stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strengths that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice a couple things about this text. One, what are these gifts? Where do they come from? They're gifts. They come from God. You don't earn them. It's kind of like your salvation. God gives spiritual gifts. He gives gifts. Why does He give gifts? So you can just hoard them? Mm -mm. Spiritual gifts are to be used for others, particularly in this context, local body. Local body service. They're not primarily for personal use. They're primarily... For the church. That's what God tells us about spiritual gifts. They're best exercised in the church where mutual edification and building up can happen. Okay, so if you've recognized two things about this Alone Together series, I hope you've recognized this. They come from the vertical. These things come from God. It's not just a, a club where we can just do nice things to one another. No, we, we, uh, we forgive because God forgave. We love because God loves. We're at peace with one another because we're at peace with God. They flow from the vertical and the horizontal. And secondly, that these things are best exercised over and over again, we see in the New Testament in the church. That's God's model, okay? By the way, so many of you are doing this. And it's such a, a delight to see. I love to see you just serving behind the scenes as I go around Sunday morning. I realize, oh, you don't go here. But serving in your various churches, I hear about it and I see it. And I just praise God for it. It's <laughs> such a joy for my heart. I was running around... Uh, today with something called Kinder Gym. And there's, I mean, this gym was just filled with little tykes running around and people taking care of them and serving them and teaching them. Man, that does my heart well. But as, as college students, I, I'm going to make a proclamation here. This may surprise you. I'm going to suggest as college men and women, college-age men and women, we ought to be the most lively people serving in the church. 
it might strike you, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you anyway that you have more what we refer to as free time right now than you will probably until you're 65 or 70. That's just a reality. The rest of your life is going to fill up with good things, an 8 to 5 job, uh, maybe a wife or a husband, maybe kids, but it's going to fill up. And the time you have in between classes and on weekends, those are good times. I realize many of you fill a, a pretty good schedule. But I want to suggest that this time is a time in your life, particularly if you're single, where you have an opportunity. I was talking to a friend uh, who serves in a, a church down in Texas, and there's literally thousands of students, who, uh, college students who go to this church, just one church. He says, you know who serves in our church? The 40-year-old people with 10 kids. So he says, what a shame. So all these people come, and the people who are like most, have most on their plates right now, they're the ones actually serving. Oh God, would it be different than the Gallatin Valley? It is, and I see it, and I'm encouraged, and you're doing good, but I think we can do better here. I think we can continue to grow in this way. We can do better. By the way, I just wanted to mention this because I think sometimes this can distract or stop people from serving. But you don't need a, a badge to serve. You don't need a title to serve. I used to really think that. I had to confront this in my own life and heart. Just serve. Um, in football, we used to talk about as you're running downfield, particularly on a kickoff. I just ran into a kid this week. I shouldn't laugh. But he has a concussion he, on, on kickoff. It's not funny, but he got... <laughs> hit in the side of his head. I said, man, keep your head on a swivel. I didn't say that because I felt bad for him. But I thought, keep your head on a swivel. That's what coach used to tell us. As you're running down, you need to watch out. Like, look around. That's how serving is, isn't it? Like, if you're so focused on one thing and you don't have a head on your swivel to see what's going on, it's hard to serve. It's hard to find, like, things to do. Just keep your head on a swivel. That leaky pitcher, put a napkin under it. Uh, that garbage that's overflowing and full, can I just kind of be real with you for a second? One of the things that I think breaks my heart the most is when people get excited about this and they say, damn, I want to serve. And I'm in the middle of uh, taking out the trash. And I said, great, could you help me? Could you take this out, the trash out for me? Yeah, you. <laughs> like that's the mentality like I was hoping for something a little bit more special can I just say that as Christians nothing is above us nothing should be below us I'll say it that way nothing is below us as Christians no act of service no act of kindness you get the feeling as I read through the New Testament and see Paul that he got walked over sometimes didn't he and he didn't always have to stand up and dust stuff off and defend himself. He did defend himself, particularly when it came to doctrine, and he should have. But nothing was below him. Nothing was below him. 1 Corinthians 9.19, we looked on a personal level and then a local level. Let's look on a global level. Paul writes here, For, I, for though I am free from all men, this is what we've been talking about, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Did you catch that? He's free from all men. What's he do? He turns around and he enslaves himself to all men. So often I hear people say, I want to be all things to all people. And what they mean by that is I'm going to take as much liberty as I can to reach as many people as possible. 
But if you understand, and by the way, this verse is in that context just a few verses later. Paul's not saying I'm going to adopt all these things. He's saying I'm going to forfeit all these things. I'm going to become like the lowly of mine. I'm going to enslave myself to people and find ways to serve them. Why? So I can win them. So I can win them. And this is just different. Shouldn't just Christians be set apart in this way? Just serving people? Like, why'd that cat do that for me? I don't know. But he does it all the time. And then you get an opportunity to say, I made myself a slave to you because I love Jesus and I want to model him. That's the, that's the issue here. That's what Paul is trying to do. It's a good principle for us to take. I, I think of a, a, I don't know what it was, a year back, I was at a park and I was trying to talk to uh, some guys at the skate park or skateboard, and I was just trying to get into their world a little bit and talk to them about the gospel. I was having a really hard time. Uh, being in their world. Some of them were just wanting to hang out and talk with me, but others weren't. You know what I really wish I would have done? Not to be manipulative, but just to serve them. It was just go buy them a bag of Doritos and a Coke and sit and talk with them. You know, I wish now that I would have really found ways to serve them in their context and in their culture. I wish that I would have been all things, all people in that way, that I would have sacrificed my thoughts or my desires or my want to kind of be cool and fit in. I just would have really served them. Has that happened to you ever? Where you need to find ways to serve, where you need to find ways to enslave yourself to people to realize there's nothing that's below you as a Christian? God gives us avenues to express our service through love in selfless, humble, others-first kinds of love and service. It's a good thing. We have, we have this picture drawn for us just beautifully, and I want to read it to you. This is the idea of a Christian. It's back in Exodus 21. It starts out, and this is the first ordinances that uh, Moses gives. You can go there if you want, but I'm going to read it to you. I'll just start in verse uh, 1 of chapter 21. It's right after uh, Moses gives them the, the commandments in the ordinance. This is the first ordinance. He says, Now these are the ordinances which you uh, are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve for six years, and on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. And it talks about his husband-wife relationships, kind of logistics. If the wife comes in, she goes out with him, those kind of things. Look at verse 5. But if when you do that, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then what happens? Then his master shall bring him to the... uh, to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. I just need a volunteer real quick. Does anyone want to? Now I'm playing. <laughs> I don't even have an awl, don't worry. Do you know what an awl is? It's a sharp object, and they would pierce his ear with the awl as a symbol of what? I'm enslaved to these people permanently. That's the picture of a bond slave. That's the picture of the servant, the New Testament slave of Jesus. Set free. Oh, my master's good. Really good. Like the kindest master ever. How could I ever leave him? I'm going to enslave myself to him. When I see people with those big earrings, I think of this. I always think of that. Enslaved to their master. We, if you're a Christian... We as Christians, we're enslaved to God. What a beautiful picture. 
So as we're enslaved to God, then we learn to serve and enslave ourselves to our fellow men. But we have one more. We have the most supreme example of service ever. Ever. His name is Jesus Christ. I want you to turn one last time with me to to the Gospel of Luke. Luke, chapter 22. Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's in the New Testament. Again, about two-thirds of the way through your Bible is the Gospel of Luke. Luke, chapter 22. Okay, Just so you're aware, this is where the Lord's Supper is instituted. Uh, this is where, if you will, it's going down in the upper room and Jesus is he's distributing the elements. He's with His disciples for one of the last times. He's about to go out into the garden and pray. He's about to be... Um, betrayed by Judas Iscariot. And right before this, by the way, right before this, let's look at the first verse. The first verse says, uh, says this, a dispute arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So it's the Last Supper. It's this serious and emotional time. And Jesus, get this, for the Third time. This is the third time this has happened. I'll show you the other two when, when we're done if you want. They're earlier in Luke and Mark and there's parallels. The third time, Jesus tells them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered over and I'm going to die and on the third day I'll rise again. And for the third time, the disciples say, I, want, I think I want to be greatest. No, I want to be great. And there's this dispute that arises among them. And you know, we don't know for sure, but you know what people think sets this one off? Sets this last dispute off. Jesus goes and He takes a towel in John 13. And He takes a basin of water and He does what even the lowest slaves didn't have to do. He goes around and He washes the disciples' feet. John 13. It says, When He poured water into a basin, He began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. And He says, So I've done to you, do to others. And He sets an example in service. And what happens? What happens? You, you, you get this? This is the third time. A dispute arose among them as to which was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who are in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I among you am the one who serves? What a Savior. What an example of service. He's our supreme example. He's the best example. That's why just as we talked about last week when Deontay taught Philippians 2, as I say, have this mind among yourselves which was yours in Christ Jesus or which is yours in Christ Jesus, whom though he was in the form of God, did not regard or count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a, what is it? A servant. A slave. By taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. He set aside the glories of heaven. He set aside his divine privileges and made himself what? A servant. And he takes the cloth and washes their feet. And God says, serve others in this way. That's our example, isn't it? That's a good example. 
Jesus thought this was pretty important, didn't he? Three times he taught this lesson. He taught this on the night that he was going to be betrayed. This was one of the last lessons he wanted to teach his disciples, Christians. This is a big deal. You want to glorify God, serve God, serve others. Serve others. Serve others. Would we be a peculiar people who just serve? Just be marked by service. Through love, serve one another. I mean, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, your word says that uh, we ought to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. Would that be our spiritual act of worship? Would we not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit? Would we serve you? Would we only fear you and serve you faithfully with all our heart? Would we consider what great things you've done for us? You said, if anyone serves me, must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. You've cleansed us through your blood. You've purified our conscience from dead works to serve you, the living God. God, make us servants. God, make us servants of you, slaves of you, and slaves of each other, that we might serve well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.